You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Eight best ways to sabotage the face-to-face new client meeting. So number one, some of them we're just barely going to mention because we've talked about them, of course, is a poorly prepared prospect. So you make a you make a strategic and financial decision in selling or in driving people to someone who does sell that basically comes down to do you invest ahead of the sales event in order to put only the best qualified people in the sales event or do you minimize that investment and suffer with shoving a lot of poorly qualified people through the sales process. Now, so let's take something where there's a theory that there's no cost. Okay? So we're going to drive them to a video-assisted sales letter or a webinar on the web, which is automated, so it costs no money to play it six bazillion times. And we're only going to drive them there with free stuff. Email social media, whatever, and let's even assume you have a monkey who will do all that for you just for bananas, and you got a trade out, so you get the bananas for free uh, for something else that you grow in your backyard that you make your kid harvest. So really, there's no expense, okay, whatsoever in the people that we drive to this selling thing. Here's where the hidden expense is. Even in that situation, is if you are going to drive hordes of poorly qualified people to it, you have to structure it differently. You have to write the copy differently. You have to sell differently, meaning broader, fuzzier, gentler, than if you were driving precisely and perfectly qualified prospects to it, and your greatest leverage in sales and marketing is message to market match. So the fuzzier you make the message, the poorer the results. Therefore, there is a hidden cost even in that. So, the, so one of the ways to sabotage is if you put poorly qualified prospects in any place, certainly in a one-to-one, which is really what we're talking about. So the last thing I want to do is be sitting in front of one-to-one or talking on the phone one-to-one with a poorly qualified prospect. i got better things to do. Hopefully you do too. Number two, we're going to come back to this late in our time together, but environmental miscues, the actual environment in which the selling is taking place, and the choreography of the sale. So just very quickly, for example, I showed you Grant Miller's postcard. So Grant is right there in the center of that room, by the way, center of that row, one, two, three, four back in case you want to later find the Sonia Buns guy that I'm making famous for no good reason. Um, 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 so you saw the, how Dave took care of me? That's perfectly acceptable. I just want you to know. Um, uh, so in terms of choreography, big change in his business simply by changing the order of the tanning booths that people are shown as they're taken on the tour in the establishment. In his case, 
the exact opposite of what everybody else in the industry does, which that's how you get to a lot of good places. So environment matters. If you are selling in the wrong environment, if you have choreographed what happens to, that, to them in that environment poorly, so if you're bringing them into a chiropractic practice, for example, the worst thing you can possibly do with a brand new person is do what they do in every medical office when everybody walks in. What's the first thing that happens? Form on a clipboard, go park your ass over there and fill it out. All right? And then we want to see four forms of photo ID, which, by the way, as I came in, the Texas Teachers Association that's over here, you need a photo ID to get in the seminar room. They don't want you to have a photo ID to vote for President of the United States, but you do need a photo ID to get in the Texas Teachers Association's meeting room. Um, but, so if you go into every medical office, right, that's the drill, right? Before you can talk to anybody, see anybody, discover if they can help you, you get handed a clipboard and a pen and you get stuck in a corner. So probably 50% of the chiropractic offices in the country do the same thing. So somebody's come in there to be sold. That's what they came in for. And we then treat them in a way that is off-putting. So the environment and sales choreography. Now, number four, we'll spend a couple minutes on. So this is what I call two different starting positions. Okay? So you're starting over there, and your prospect is still starting over here. And he'll never catch up. So that means you have certain assumptions about where the prospect is when they and you meet and you begin to talk to them however it is that you talk to them. So in media, if you collected, oh, I don't know, 500 sales letters from 500 different companies who use sales letters, and you stretched them all out on a great big table and you really studied them, you would see that the overwhelming majority of them start with the assumption that the reader of the sales letter is ready to buy what it is they're selling. They leave out getting them from where they really are to the point of, okay, I'm ready to hear about a whiz-bang lawnmower. They leave out, do you really want a great-looking lawn? They leave out, how important is a great-looking lawn to you? They leave out why all the other lawnmowers suck. They leave out all that stuff and they start with, let me tell you about my great lawnmower. Because they assume somebody who requested information about lawnmowers or came into a lawnmower store is ready to buy a lawnmower. Taint necessarily so. So two different starting positions. You really have to figure out where they are when you begin your conversation with them or they never catch up. Five, if you're perceived as a typical salesman. So if you go to a car dealership to buy a car, you know you're confronting a salesman, but still, there's no need to really rub it in everybody's nose. All right? It's not helpful. It's actually more helpful for them to kind of forget that they're in front of a salesman as time goes on. So like if an actor who's been at a TV series for many years, okay, 
and you watch them in that series. They have a tough time now in the next series because you can't get out of your head, right, what they were. And in many cases, they need a time lapse before they're able to come back and do anything else, right? So, so we don't really want to remind everybody, I'm a salesman, I'm a salesman, I'm a salesman, I'm a salesman. But if you go into almost every cubicle in every car dealership, and the salesman sits down behind his desk, and you sit here in the crappy plastic chairs facing the desk, and you look past him, what do you see on the wall? Sales awards. That's exactly right. So in coaching the financial advisors, they brought you know, their stuff to the first meeting, and we're all looking at their, their own shock and awe packages that they put together, their own literature, and one of the very bright advisors in the room. So this is not, this is not a stupid person. It is still a stupid mistake, but it's not a stupid person. So the very first thing when you open up the literature that he puts in front of everybody when they come into his seminar is a page with all of the sales awards he's won. Million dollar producer, top producer of the year, etc. So timid, worried people have worked up enough courage to come to his free seminar to hear about money and he has handed them a page that says two things. Warning, I'm a salesman. Second warning, I'm a really good one. <laughs> Uh-oh, Martha. You can immediately see him in a room, taking the wallet, giving it to Martha to lock up in her purse, <laughs> moving to the back so they can get out, right? So... When you're perceived as a quote, quote, typical sales person, you put yourself at disadvantage. Links, insufficient diagnosis. Everybody wants custom and personal solutions. The only people that buy off the shelf are the people who either are too dumb to be your customer in the first place because they have no value perception or have no financial choice. But if somebody's offered what they perceive to be a customized personal solution, they will always prefer it to an off-the-shelf solution. So again, one of my main gripes with sales people in one-to-one -one selling is going to the PowerPoints presentation. Because the PowerPoints presentation says two things. It says, I'm a salesman. Look, I got a PowerPoints presentation. Secondly, it says everybody's getting the same presentation, which means everybody's getting the same off-the-shelf, off-the-rack solution. So the good financial advisors have in their offices where they sit, what do they got? A whiteboard with some markers. For me, I'd still have chalk, by the way, because the average customer is 62 to... Well, by the way, so until his little dust-up finally... Um, so Glenn Beck had the highest rated television show in his time slot, kicking everybody's butt at it together. And what was he doing every night? Chalk. Chalk. All right. you, think, you, you think they couldn't afford a whiteboard? I think probably they could have scraped up the money for a whiteboard. I think they could probably scrape up the money for a really cool PowerPoints presentation every night. But chalkboard but at least a whiteboard so the financial advisor can get up and create before everybody's eyes 
a customized, personal solution from diagnosis. So if you start selling without asking a bunch of diagnostic questions, right? So if you go to your doc and he doesn't bang on your knee with a hammer and he doesn't get some x-rays taken and he doesn't and he says, you need six green pills and we need to amputate your ear, you, you're not necessarily thrilled with that prescription because it seems like it might have something to do with green pill dispensing, getting you a trip to Puerto Rico, and ear amputations being what he does best, but it didn't seem to come from any sort of investigatory process. So insufficient diagnosis, person who asks the best questions wins, not necessarily the person who gives the best answers. The dog on the roof of the car problem. That's uh, Romney's problem at the moment. If you don't know, there's this ancient story about him putting the Labrador in the dog thing and strapping it to the roof of the car to go on vacation somewhere. Okay? Didn't seem to bother my brothers. But um, um, so they actually are now running a commercial, by the way, that shows a dog being strapped to the roof of a car. Okay. The, this problem is one negative image, one incongruent thing destroys everything else you're doing. Right. So, if I claim that I operate in a no interruption zone and have enormous control over my workday and my environment, and you now are there for a day of consulting, and 18 times during the day somebody runs in with a phone call I have to take, guess what I just did? I undermined everything I've done. Only takes one thing. Only takes one thing. So most of you wouldn't know, but some of you would. So Zig, uh, for many years, had what we called Zig's evil twin. Uh, Zig had a brother, um, nearly a twin, born very close together, looked just like Zig, sounded just like Zig, um, except Zig sort of is known as the spiritual, evangelical Christian, good guy. Well, Zig's brother was a hardcore direct sales trainer. So he looked just like Zig, except for all the ash, cigarette ashes and cigarette holes in his suit and the cigarette hanging out of the side of his mouth the whole time he was on stage talking and the glass that really was not iced tea. And... Um, and immediately at the end of the presentation, let's all go to the bar together, all right? By the way, he was a hell of a lot more fun to hang out with than Zig. <laughs> but, um, uh, but now imagine if Zig did it. Zig couldn't even be seen at a bar. He wouldn't dare because one time, that's all it would take. Right? So that's the dog on the roof of the car problem. You've got to be very, very, very careful 
that everything lines up with and supports your positioning because one little thing that's wrong is all it takes. No box. We talked about the box close. It really means no agreement on what it is you and I are trying to accomplish here. So a really good salesperson finds a way to box the prospect in, in a way that's okay with the prospect. So my doc at Cleveland Clinic, as part of his normal first conversation patter, is, well, what will you consider success in a year? What are the three health goals you have? What's number one? What's number two? What's number three? And I know what he's doing while he's doing it. I'm saying to myself, son of a, he's building a box. This is not good, right? <laughs> this is not what I want to, I know what he's doing, right? But that's exactly what he should be doing. Agree to the objectives before the sales presentation starts, so at the end of the sales presentation, we can say, hey, it fits the box. Sign here. So people do sales presentations with no box. There's no agreement on where we're trying to wind up at the end. So my consulting days at $18,800 a piece, almost always, so somebody comes in and they, they come to me for one of two reasons. They're very specific. We want a new full-page newspaper ad. We want an infomercial. So they come for that kind of reason. They come, or they come because they're like, they're coming to the mass unit. Okay? So I get a lot of the desperately wounded, okay, we've screwed it up totally. Now, can you fix it? That's the second thing I get. I always back everybody up. Let's have a different conversation first. It'll only take about a half an hour, but I want to know what you want your business life to look like three to five years from now. If you could have your utopian existence in business, what would that be, and how would that be different from where you are now? Mm -hmm. I'm building the box for the end of the day. So now my prescription can achieve the box. Okay, that's what I'm doing. So people start with no box. Where you're trying to get, you want one of these three questions. You want them turning to you saying, okay, I get it. How can you help me with this? What's next? Or hey, how do I work with you? Closing in the absence of these questions is very hard because you're closing without invitation. And when it happens, it's not pretty. So, Stuart Spencer, where are you? Stuart in the room? There he is, all the way over there. So it's still possible, even for me, by violating my own rules of engagement, to have a very ugly day. So Stuart, God bless him, he brings a client to me with, in which we have a shared possible interest. They're a big, dumb company client, and they are, despite his best efforts, ill-prepared. Right? They really haven't read my stuff. They haven't been a GKIC member. They haven't been getting the newsletter. Right? He has sort of fast-paced prepped them. And he has now brought them to me. And Stuart 
and they are now with me, and Stuart gets to witness firsthand ugly. I mean, they bought a day, and they're all looking at their watches at 10.30, and I'm glad they're looking at their watches. This is what, we, what I call a dull thud. <clears throat> and nobody really wants to be there. And there's nothing I can really do because we never get to these questions. So for me now to plow ahead at some point with, okay, guys, here's what we should do next. And here's phase one, and here's phase two, and here's phase three, and here's how much it's going to cost. I'm like talking to dead air. I have no place to go. Totally my fault, by the way, because... They weren't properly prepared. I didn't create a box. I violated everything I'm talking about. And now I'm at a dead end because when it's time for them to ask this question, they all just look at me. And I'm, I got no place to go. Not a good place to end. And that's where you will end if you don't do the beginning correctly. Talk about how sensitive some of this stuff is. So we'll play a game. We'll see how smart you are. So three guys are in, and it, this is true, by the way. This is not a made-up exercise. This is real. This is called research. So three men are in Israeli prisons. The parole board consists of a judge, a criminologist, and a social worker. All three had completed two-thirds of their sentences. You are now going to guess which one got parole. Okay? Everybody got the setup? So here's your three prisoners. You have an Arab Israeli serving a 30-month term for fraud. You have a Jewish Israeli serving a 16-month sentence for assault. And you have an Arab Israeli also serving a 30-month sentence for fraud. Okay? So you have three inmates. Only one got parole. Which one do you think got parole? How many think number one got parole? How many think number two got parole? How many people think number three got parole? And now you would have learned more looking around at everybody else than looking at me. And since it's so instructive, we'll do it again. <laughs> how many think number one got parole? How many think, how many think number two got parole? How many think number three got parole? Right? And the overwhelming majority of you who think number two got parole, you think so because of the ethnicity, correct? You think because of the sentence? Huh. Okay. You're, all, you're wrong, by the way. But So, here's a fact you didn't know. Number one was at 8.50 in the morning. Number two was at 3.10 in the afternoon, and number three was at 4.25 in the afternoon. Now, I want to point out to you that number one and number three are identical. They are identical in ethnicity, and they are identical in crime, and they are identical in life of, in term of sentence. Okay? They are the same, okay? except for the time of day that they went before the parole board. It's the only variable in this entire equation. So a review of 1,100 of these parole board decisions over a period of years, the early in the morning guy 
got parole 70% of the time. The end of day guy got parole 10% of the time. 70%, 10%. The odds favored number one in this case at 8.50. The guy number three had the least possible chance of getting parole even though he had the same as he was the same as number one. And by your reasoning, number two should have, but actually number one did because of the time of day. There's a thing, there's a psychological reason for all this. It's called decision fatigue. And so when people are put in positions where they are weary of confronting choices, their willingness to make them diminishes, and they either don't make them or they start making them willy-nilly just to get them over with. So if you've ever gone to buy something where there's a lot of choices and you're getting asked one question after another, so there's a chain that makes this mistake when you go in. I got the list here. So people go in to register at this store for wedding gifts, right? They get asked, I'm not going to read them all. They get asked 26 questions before they get to register, right? Do you want to put in the thing that you want plain or patterned china? Uh, which brand of knives do you want to put in there? What thread count of the sheets do you want to put in there? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? When the store gets to the point of asking, can we have the email addresses or hard addresses of the people you want to know you've registered here, they get very low compliance. There's another chain of stores that asks three questions and then tries for the same contact information, and over half of them give them all the contact information. So decision fatigue is a part of selling. Now, you can do one of two things with it, right? So you can, you can deliberately induce it so that somebody just throws their hands up with the last five questions and picks something. And as long as you're putting choices in front of them that are all acceptable to you, that's fine. Or you can choose to simplify it and make it easy for them. You can use the prospect of decision fatigue to drive them to just hand everything over to you. So that's the way I usually use it. So like for my client, Craig Proctor, in real estate, we built the document that is given to you of everything you should know before you list your home with one real estate agent versus another. Here's the 312 things you need to know. Here's all the questions you need to ask. And here's how to score the answers from all five of the real estate agents you are going to interview before you list your house. The person says to themselves, holy shit, I didn't know it was this complicated. I don't want to do all that. I guess the guy's smart enough to figure out all the questions. Is it here? Right? And so after that prospect, 
two choices. Do you want to list with plan A or do you want to list with plan B? Guess what? Everybody picks one because the evil prospect of picking neither and then having to go do this is just, just intolerable. I'll show you very quickly. This is a sales letter. We're in the test phase. We're still working some things out, but this is for a client of mine who is selling Google Places management to small business owners. I'm not going to read you all the copy, but I'm just going to show you so you get the idea. Okay. So this is uh, now the bad news. So I don't know what page this is in a long letter, but now the bad news. Properly using Google Spaces is god-awfully complicated and time-consuming and painful and fraught with danger. So the, then do you really want to learn Google Places management yourself? And then we tell them how they can go do that if they want to. And the one, two, three, four, five, six websites they're going to have to go to and get stuff in order to figure all of this out. And here are just a few of the things you need to do daily to maintain your ranking. And then we give them two pages of everything they need to do daily in order to maintain their rankings. And there's three more pages of this, three more pages of bad news complicating this beyond all conceivable recognition of what you will have to do to make a decision about how to do it and then to maintain it every day, right? Then we put 17 things that get done for you, right, which is more stuff you would have to do if you were going to do it yourself. And then when all of that's done, we give them three choices, plan A, plan B, plan C. So we have deliberately fatigued them to the point that they would love to pick plan A, plan B, plan C, any one of which is perfectly okay with us. By the way, the majority, of course, will pick, well, okay, so plan, let's try that. So plan A is $297 a month for four months. <clears throat> plan B is $297 a month for six months. And plan C is $297 a month for eight months. Uh, which plan do you think most people will pick? How many think people will pick A? You'll learn more if you look at everybody else. How many people think they'll pick B? How many people think they'll pick C? Right? It's B, because people pick the middle. It's just that simple. People pick the middle. Now, this is where the stuff Dave teaches you actually comes in, okay? because that structure is the same structure that you use when you are getting people to pick a suite, a symbol, a number, a car. It's the same stuff. Okay? So in charity, right, you see charity devices like this all the time. The starving urchins will appreciate any donation, and there's either three, four, or five choices. The overwhelming majority of people take one of the middle two. Right? And so that's the number you really want. The top number, number or numbers are red herrings that you don't really expect anybody to do and hardly anybody does. But if you just gave them a blank line and let them do what they wanted, the average donation is half of what it is when you structure choices from the same people with the same pitch. Right? So who was that? Oh, give me, give me a quick story why I shouldn't find you. Well, that's no case. That means you should know better. See, now, if you had told me, oh, I've never been here before, I didn't know the rules. Oh, no, 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 no. You just sunk yourself. 
You want to try again? It might be your last. Do you want? Let me explain a couple things to you. Hey, I don't care. B, in case you didn't notice, we can fill your seat. You want to try a third time? I've read all your books except for Psycho-Cybernetics. Well, you need help. Now, now all you've done is aggravate me. What, what do you mean you haven't read all of them? What is wrong with you? I'm going to let you off the hook, but it's a good thing you're here. Um, so, now, what happens at the opposite end of this right, is there's an actual biological, physiological thing that happens when someone has made a decision. Having made a decision actually feels good. So when we have created a certain level of anxiety or fueled a level of anxiety about making a decision, we actually increase the desire to make the decision because the good feeling is having made a decision. Now, the reason it's beneficial to know that little fact is what are the two things you would most like to have happen right after someone has made a buying decision and has said yes to you? Who knows? Thank you, Grant. That's one of the two. You want to immediately sell them something else. And when's the best time to sell them something else? When they're feeling really good. So they have just made a decision. They have done something that's difficult for them. They have relieved anxiety. They have an actual endorphin rush in their system, which they got from having said yes. So when you put another thing in front of them to say yes to, they almost always say yes. That's why phone upsells work on telephone, right? So if you call in from an infomercial or whatever, and you buy X, what immediately happens? They try and sell you Y. Roughly 20% of the people say yes. And they do it badly. I mean, somebody's reading it off a computer screen. The upsell doesn't necessarily correlate to the original offer. So under the worst circumstances, one out of five say yes. The reason they do is because it felt so good to say yes. So they do it again. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, means you might want to try a third time. What's the other thing we might want them to do immediately after they have said yes? Refer, of course. Testimonial or referral. When are they most likely to do that? When they feel real good. So that's why it's important to know that piece of information. I'll talk with you quickly about some special selling situations. So one is how you sell to people who think they are much smarter than you are, they are much more successful than you are. They're in one way, shape, or form bigger than you are. Mm -hmm. So in my personal practice, I have this a lot. Because generally, because often I'm dealing with clients who have bigger companies than I. They may own their plane. I rent mine. They have more money than I do, and they know it. Okay? So in my personal practice, I'm dealing with it. In a group environment like with the financial advisors, everybody in the room 
is making at least a million dollars a year. They think they're pretty smart. They think they're kicking butt and taking names. So in that selling environment, there's four keys to being successful. One is a certain amount of flattery is necessary. Because mm -hmm. um, they got egos. And the ego cannot be ignored. Second, honest acknowledgement of the situation. So, my general belief about selling, by the way, is this. You never, ever, 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 ever <clears throat> want to hope they don't notice the elephant behind the curtain whose half of his ass is sticking out from the curtain. You've told him to go hide, but, you know, how does an elephant hide on a pool table? He wears green sneakers, right? So, take that home. Your kid loves that joke. Um, you want it again? You need to write that. Um, so I never, 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 never want to be selling, hoping nobody notices the elephant. By the way, that's why a lot of salespeople have a lot of anxiety about selling. And their anxiety builds up as it gets closer and closer and closer to ask for a close. Because they've been holding their breath, literally or figuratively, the entire time, hoping no nobody notices the big stinking elephant. And their fear that they're going to notice it and mention it goes up as they get closer and closer to closing because nobody's mentioned it so far. Okay? And so they start to worry and worry and worry and worry more that the elephant is going to come out from behind the curtain and take a big dump right where everybody's trying to close the sale. And so their anxiety level goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. Prospects sense anxiety in salespeople. What they want is calm confidence and certainty. And so they sense anxiety in the salesperson. And even if the elephant never appears, now the same effect occurs because they sense the anxiety and they don't want to buy from an anxious person. It doesn't feel right. Now, they can't consciously enunciate what I just enunciated, but subconsciously that's what's going on with them. So it's always better to trot out the elephant as early as possible and now make it go away. So I will always acknowledge that, hey, you're running a half a billion dollar a year company, and I'm not. So my conversation with the president of Weight Watchers went like this. You're running this giant corporation, and I'm not. I got my little briefcase, and, you know, here I am. Have brain, we'll work for food, right? You know everything there is to know about running this company far more than I do, with one teeny tiny little exception. You're kind of clueless about how to get a bunch of people to come to a meeting. Unfortunately, everything else you know is devalued by the fact that you guys don't know how to do that. That happens to be the one thing I know how to do really well. So if you go do the 5,000 things you know how to do, that I don't know how to do, which is why you're CEO of this giant company, if you let me do the one thing so the analogy for that, for example, is what kind of car do you have at home in your garage? He says, I got a Ferrari. I said, terrific. Do you work on it yourself? Of course not. Is your mechanic the CEO of a company the size of Weight Watchers, and does he make the same salary you do? No. No, but he knows how to keep your Ferrari running. One has nothing to do with the other. 
Same sort of lecture has to happen with the million dollar Okay, so you acknowledge this. This answers a question I get a lot from people, by the way, of how do I sell to people, especially if I'm selling help. How do I sell to people who are much more successful than I am? It doesn't make any difference because he can't make his own Ferrari run, nor does he want to. Then you also have to smack him in the face with a two-by-four, and you have to make them realize that they aren't half as smart as they thought they were. So, for example, I'll use the financial advisor thing as an example. So everybody in the room, the first meeting we're all having, these are all seven-figure and up guys. They're all pretty good at what they do. And they're all, by the way, very good salespeople. So when I talked yesterday about marketing side, sales side, pretty much everybody comes from one side or the other and tends to default to what they're good at rather and where they came from rather than master and balance and integrate both. So the financial advisors are really good sales guys. They know how to sit down in front of somebody and convince them to hand over their life savings. Okay? They're good at it. Therefore, they default to it. So they never really get good at the marketing side. And the thing they're like worst at is getting referrals. Okay? Their referral statistics are terrible. They get them, but they get them by accident. So their stats are terrible. So there's the one chink in the armor by which I can make them feel really, really, really dumb and feckless and inadequate. Is I can talk to them about the hierarchy of referrals. How many referrals does the average used car salesman get in a year? How many referrals does the average chiropractor get in a year? How many referrals does the average hairstylist get in a year? And then way down here on the list is how many referrals you got. Which, by the way, most of them, of course, don't know. So questions like, what's your referral efficacy rate? For the number of active clients you have in a year, how many referrals per client did you get last year? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? How could you possibly be running a multi-million dollar a year business and not know the answer to that question? The guy says, oh, shit. I thought I, I thought I was really smart. Now maybe I'm not so smart. Right? If you miss that step, so you got to find something that you can smack them over the head with, right? Then establish authority to lead on that matter. In my case, there's more than that one. With them, there's several things, right? right? So in Matt's case, for example, talking to the same people, going back to a thing and inadequacy, here's the big difference. Almost everybody in the room fills their seminars with seniors by feeding them. And they have a term for it. They call the people that come to these seminars. And so if there's 20 financial advisors doing seminars in Atlanta, there are people who go to all of them. Okay? They go there to eat. Okay? Because most of them do the seminars at nice country clubs they would never go to on their own. Most of them feed them steak, whereas they'd be at the, you know, the country buffet. Um, uh, and so they go to eat. Financial advisors call them plate linkers. Okay? And they hate them. They just detest them. Right? They hate having to do it, but they can't figure out how not to do it. So Matt never feeds them. Fills seminar rooms without doing that. Therefore, we get to say to everybody in the room, you thought you were really smart, but you hate plate lickers, yet you can't figure out how to fill a room without filling a room full of plate lickers that you don't like. We don't have to do that. Boom. 
I says, well, I thought I was really smart, but shit, maybe I'm not really smart. Okay? Establish authority to lead on that matter. Now, common selling mistake, most people make number four number one. Okay? They start out with the resume. But in this environment, where everybody thinks they're way above you, smarter than you, they're arrogant, right? starting out with that won't work because your resume is inadequate. So you got to do the other steps first. And finally, the thing such people respond to best is exclusivity. The more successful people are and the more arrogant they are, the more competitive they are with somebody and the more eager they are to have something no one else can have, or at least no one else on their block can have. All right? So exclusivity. So there's the fifth. Group selling. One to many um, is a very useful way to sell. Doesn't matter whether we're running Tupperware or whether we're selling $50,000 business programs. One to many is a very useful way to sell because it's time and talent efficient. Better to sell to many than one after one after one after one. So the franchise industry, for example, one of our members, uh, I don't think Dr. Timeshack's here, um, but uh, Chris, uh, conversion franchising of chiropractic clinics is nearing 400 from zero in under four years. I think it's at 372 or 373 or whatever. Um, if you know anything about the franchise industry, almost all franchise companies sell real slow, one-to-one. -one. They generate a lead. Most franchisors now generate them online. Okay? So the worst thing is they start out with somebody who's searching which means they're not just searching for your franchise, they're looking at 50 of them. Then ultimately, a sales guy gets a hold of them and starts talking to them and talking to them again and talking to them again and talking to them again and maybe getting face-to-face -face with them and then finally getting them to the point they want to buy the thing and then they got to get them financed and on and on and on. So this is very slow, very painful. And you need a lot of sales guys, right? Because sales guy can only handle a handful of prospects at a time because he's basically half living with them and it wears him out, right? We, one to many, use what we call the discovery day model. We drive them all in in groups. Chris sells them all in groups. The follow-up's much faster. Typically, the discovery day, the last one was in the same hotel I was doing the trust seminar at the same time. Uh, so I saw Chris talk to him. He's also in my titanium group. The last one, 72% of the room bought. Okay, they're very effective. So if you ask Chris about one-to-many versus one-to-one, -one, he would tell you one-to-many wins every single time. Way back in, I wrote it down, got it, so I got accurate numbers. From 1980 to 1983, in one of my companies, we put just over 14,000 chiropractors and dentists in rooms all across America, 30, 35, 40 at a time, in order to sell to them. We sold to more than 70% of them, generating more than $8 million in front-end revenue. Now, those of you who are familiar with all sorts of different marketing, let me ask you a question. How many doctors would you have to push 
through websites to view webinars or read online sales letters to make 9,800 sales. I'll give you a hint. More than there are. Okay. But if you'll put them in a room and do one to many, you can do that. So group selling in rooms is super effective for these three reasons. One, for reassurance. And by the way, selling after the sale by putting people in rooms together is even more effective for this reason. <clears throat> so how many of you have network marketing or its previous incarnation, multi-level marketing experience? Raise your hands. <clears throat> You'll learn more by looking around. Okay, so a lot of you. How many of you have had some level of success in that field? Raise your hands nice and proud. Okay, so here's what you probably all know. Here's what I learned real early. Five minutes after you recruit them, they're trying to quit. The clock's ticking. Their expiration date's real short. Like, if you got them on Sunday, the expiration date's right around a week from Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And in that period of time, you are now in the rescue crisis management mode because that person woke up trying to quit and they're going to be trying to quit all week long. So how do you typically counter that? Well, you give them CDs to listen to. You give them DVDs to watch. You get them on a conference call. You go back and blow breath on them physically the next day. Well, you do the goal-setting meeting. You do the Christmas card list meeting. Uh, you get out the Christmas card list, and you make the list of everybody that they're going to invite to meetings. So you do all that. But if you don't get them to a room where they see a bunch of other people who look relatively sane before their expired date comes up, you are almost certainly going to lose them because that's the only thing that fixes the I must be the only idiot problem. Say, webinar can't do it because they're still watching it at home in their basement. Alone. The only thing that can help is seeing other sane people around them. So group settings with human beings are very reassuring. Doesn't matter if we're selling juicers, if we're putting them in MLM, if we're putting... Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay? Because there's a reassurance factor purely because I'm not the only nitwit who has who has bought or is about to buy this proposition, reassurance. Secondly, for manipulation and pressure. Group activities create pressure because most people follow the leader. So if a few leaders move, others move because somebody moved in front of them. That's why the disreputable folks who sell in groups. So how many of you watched a good pitch guy at a state fair, a county fair, a boardwalk, selling slicer dicers, knives, some kind of demonstrable product? You've stood there and watched it, okay? How many of you bought something? Very good, this is a good group. Uh, Dave, you're in the back somewhere. Um, I suggest we raise the prices on everything for the remainder of the event by 20%, okay? Um, they've just told us something important. Um, so those guys almost always 
employ shills. I'm not suggesting this. I'm just telling you how powerful it is. They almost always employ shills. So the guy who's on the road selling the slicer dicer, he's got four or five employees. He's paying out of his pocket because he can't use the same one again and again and again because somebody will see him and he'll get caught. So he uses one, and then they go take a nap, and then he uses another one, and they go take a nap, and he uses another one, and they go take a nap, and he pays them. Because as soon as one person enthusiastically buys, four more enthusiastically buy, and then everybody follows the herd. If he didn't have a starter, okay? So how many of you work somewhere where there's a tip jar? How many of you work there? Not many. Okay, well, you should all know you want to put some money in the tip jar, okay? before the first person puts money in the tip jar. If you open a new office or a new restaurant, you want to go rent a bunch of cars from Hertz, and you want to park cars in the parking lot, and move them around, because nobody wants to be the first car. Okay? This, is a, this is a human behavioral pattern. So in a one-to-many selling situation, you can create some version of a stampede effect. So how many of you watch Home Shopping, QVC or HSN? Okay, good. Okay, now how many don't? How many, like, in the past six months haven't watched Home Shopping? Okay, you guys are nitwits. Okay. Well, you paid to be here. Why would you pass up free sales and marketing education? Okay. So first of all, to get there, everybody had to be really good. They had to have a great sales message. They had to have a great offer. They had to get through audition. They had to give them a reasonable belief that they could perform well in that environment, and it's a very difficult selling environment. There is a predetermined target of how, how many dollars per 30 seconds have to be happening, kind of like on a telethon. It's sort of like a telethon. You've got an earpiece on, and a producer is talking to you while you are talking telling you whether you're making the phone ring or not, because if the phones aren't ringing, you want to stop that story you're in the middle of in mid-sentence and switch to something else to try and make the phone rings, because if the phones aren't ringing, you ain't going to make that 30-second by 30-second quota, and if you get behind by about four minutes, you'll never catch up during your time slot, and guess what? You're not going to get to stay on QVC or HSN. So it's a very difficult selling environment. One of the things that drives it, which many of you would not know since you don't watch it. By the way, you guys got a thing called a DVR, I think. Um, I have a TV guy, but you have a DVR, so you actually could even DVR it, I think, and watch it at your leisure, like when you're all on the treadmill. Well, all right. Um, um, so so all, here's one of the things that makes it work. People are calling in, buying, and then getting put through to the pitch person live. By the way, this is the last live television in the world. TV all used to be live. This is live TV. Okay? And they're calling in and talking about how excited they are to be buying and how happy they are with the other thing they bought from this particular pitch person six weeks ago. Now, I'm not going to accuse any of these people of having shills. But it's the same effect, and it wouldn't surprise me if the first couple calls were maybe routed through a different number in order to start the ball 
rolling, so manipulation and pressure. Stampede, sheep effect. If you can create a stampede, it takes on a life of its own. QVC, HSN, QVC does a better job with it than HSN. So, well, the other thing you'll see on QVC is you will see countdowns because there's a limited number of units of the garden hose, the Christmas tree, this piece of jewelry, whatever. There's a limited number of units. And so there's minutes left to buy and there's numbers of units left to buy. And there's a countdown occurring with both of them. The countdown of the units starts to accelerate. More and more units are disappearing as the time is disappearing, thereby giving the impression of a stampede of purchasing. And when there is a stampede, if you get a stampede started, then the cattle stampede. That's what they do. It's very hard to do that very hard for QVC to pull it off because nobody can see the stampede. Very hard to do it with a webinar. They can't see the stampede. Physically, if a bunch of you get up and start moving, we can see that. And we want to be a part of it. So there are things you can do that make that happen. How many of you are familiar with the Juice Man? Very successful product. Basically launched an industry Juicers for many years were like the countertop grills. They trotted them all out at Christmas, sold them in the department stores, put them back in the closet. Guy by the name of Jay Cordich, the quote, quote, the juice man, changed all that. Literally created a whole new industry. So today, they're sold in all sorts of stores successfully. There's almost always at least one infomercial on the air, sometimes two or three. Right now, Montel Williams is making 11 selling juicers. If I forget somebody else, uh, it became a staple on home shopping. Okay? It began, I have numbers. So the way they built the Juice Man, I'm going to recommend a book to you too. The way they built the Juice Man business to a great extent for two years before the first infomercial ran is he was out selling juicers from the stage in free seminars, which people were brought into by radio, TV advertising, direct mail, and PR in an area. So 1989, the total U.S. sales of all juicers, all of them, $15 million. The first year Juice Man was on TV, okay, which was 1989, they did $500,000. $15 million industry, $500,000 they got. 1990, they did $6 million. 1991, they did $30 million. 1992, they did $75 million. Okay. Now, uh, uh, let me say it again. $15 million industry. Right? By 1992, they did $75 million. Okay. At the time, they still did seminars. They just got to do bigger seminars. So they would go into L.A., use the same infomercial, cut the commercial out with the offer in it, stick a commercial in to drive people to seminars, and routinely, like in the L.A. market in one week, do one to one and a half million dollars worth of business with Jay standing on stage selling juicers to a big audience instead of a small audience. One to many, very, very, very powerful. I have a um, Titanium member who may be in the room, and I forget his name, which is horrible because I wanted to give him a plug. If you're here, you can stand up. He's a dentist who has really perfected 
driving people to in-office seminars for implant dentistry. Do I have you? <clears throat> no, 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 no. And I can't, his name, believe me, you're not going to prompt me. It's just a blank. Huh? Thank you, Scott Westemeyer. You don't happen to know his website, do you? It's probably, if you can spell Westemeyer, you can probably find him. Um, uh, anyway, he has just perfected this. Okay? And in an in-office seminar, so however many people you can fit in the reception room of an office, he's routinely writing a million dollars worth of dentistry. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Even at big case values, and his really are not that high, right? By any other means, how long, how much trouble, how much expense do you think you're going to have to go through to sell a million dollars worth of dentistry? And he's doing it in one three-hour evening. Now, I'm telling you, this is powerful. One to many in groups. Next special situation, selling new concepts. You have a handout that was given to you. It looks like this. Extra gift. We're not going to go through it. It is all about the power of selling concepts. It came from the trust-based marketing seminar. So you got two handouts at the same time. That's the second one. But very quickly, if you're selling new concepts, here are some of the best tricks. One is what's called taste like chicken. So you've all heard this one, right? Somebody's trying to get you to eat, you to eat some obnoxious, strange, horrible thing, right? In Arizona, it's rattlesnake. Everybody tries to get people to eat rattlesnake. Deep-fried rattlesnake. What's it taste like? Oh, it tastes just like chicken. Okay? In Alabama and Florida, they're trying to get you to eat fried alligator. Uh, what does it taste like? Oh, it tastes just like chicken. Okay? Deep in Kentucky, they're trying to get you to eat roadkill. What does it taste like? Oh, it tastes just like chicken. I always say, then why don't we eat chicken? Right? Because I already know that's not going to kill me or make me throw up or give me... How about we just eat chicken if it tastes like chicken? But so everybody uses that, right? Every time they're trying to get you to eat some horrible thing you shouldn't eat and you ask them what it tastes like, they all say it tastes like chicken. And what happens? Most people say, all right, and they eat it. So it's the power of analogy. When you're trying to sell a new concept, you have to frame it as a comparable to a concept everybody already accepts, that they're already okay with. Greases the wheels a lot. Ego, first on the block. So why do... I'd love to know if there's anybody in here, but I won't embarrass you. So why do people go and take their tents and stay overnight in a parking lot in order to be one of the first people to get in and get the new gadget? Do they do it because they need the gadget by 9 o'clock in the morning? No. Right. Do they do it because they won't get the gadget otherwise? Not lately. The newest gadgets you can be ordering from Amazon and have them the next day behind everybody who's laying in the parking lot. So they're not doing it because they won't get one. Are they getting a better price? No. So why are they doing it? Ego. 
That's the way they get to feel important in their little universe, is they're the first person to have that thing. Why do people do it with movies? So they go and sleep overnight in a tent in order to get into the first midnight show and see the new movie. Why? Because that's how they get to feel important and boost their ego because they saw it before all their friends. And now they get to tweet them all and say, nah, 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 I saw the movie and you haven't. Right? Millionaires do the same stupid stuff. They don't do it with a movie, but they'll do it with what we want to sell to them. Everybody can be strongly motivated to purchase if a purchase makes them feel important. So I asked you about the network marketing industry before, the direct sales industry. What makes that whole thing tick is buttons and ribbons. That's what makes the whole thing tick. So no disrespect to this particular company, but the average Mary Kay representative, and they have very good retention, the average Mary Kay representative makes, which actually is a misnomer because the only thing they can report is how much they buy to resell theoretically, $136 a year. The last time I looked at the numbers, right? Why are they there? It ain't for the money, right? It's because it's the place where they get to go feel important. Why does Al Bundy belong to a bowling league? Because it's the place where he gets to go feel important. Everybody responds. So why does somebody join the big expensive country club that nobody else can join and five different people who are already members have to approve you, etc.? Because that makes them feel important. So when we tick a purchase to making them feel important, which being first on the block is one of the most common ways to do it, we get some sales leverage. Peer or popular pressure. People buy all sorts of stuff because their peers are buying it. Right? So your teenager wants a certain kind of shoe because all his buddies are wearing those shoes. He wants the pants that drag on the ground because everybody's everybody's wearing the pants that drag on the ground. Arrested development, we're all that kid. We all succumb to peer pressure. I had a conversation, and I don't mean to pick on this media, but I had a conversation not long ago with the executives of a fairly large nonprofit. And they've invested a huge amount of money, time, effort, and energy in beefing up all their social media. Their facts, which to their credit, they have facts, is like 80% of all new donor development came from direct mail, 60% of all revenue came from direct mail, um, corporate sponsors almost all came from direct mail plus a personal sales call, and their plan for this year is to reduce all those budgets by 30% in order to spend more beefing up their social media. So I pointed out the possible hazard of this decision as gently as I could. And then I asked, why would you do this? Because everybody else running charities that we hang out with at our mastermind meetings is doing this. Now, 
I wasn't getting paid, so I didn't do the whole seminar on that's the best reason of all not to do it. But so I skipped that. But think about it, that's how people work. Okay? They're big on peer pressure. Okay? So the way so how did so Warren Buffett finally decided I have a really bug up my butt about Warren, but so Warren finally decided not to leave all his money to his kids, and then he made a big deal out of it's all going to charity except for a small amount. How did he get there? Bill Gates. That's how he got there. He got pressured to a decision by a peer. Peer pressure, powerful with everybody. Not again what they've missed out on before. So a brand new concept that nobody has any familiarity with what do they have familiarity with? At some point in their life, they rejected a new concept that now they wish they hadn't. So everybody has a fish that got away story in their life if they're very old at all. They have the stock they believe they would have bought if only. They have the piece of real estate they would have bought if only in the financial category. They have the fish that got away in every single category. So if we're going to sell them a new concept now, we have to make it that. Another fish that might get away. Conspiracy theory, very useful. So the reason, so one of the problems with selling a brand new concept that nobody has any familiarity with is that if it's so good, how come I haven't heard about it from anybody but you. How come I'm just hearing about it? If it's so good, so the answer to that is there's a big conspiracy to keep you from hearing about it. Well, you see that in ad copy all the time, right? So Kevin Trudeau's made a living now for the last decade on what? Secrets they don't want you to know. That headline, by the way, I got it back to 1908, I think. It probably goes back further than that. But, all right, so it's secrets they don't want you to know. Who's they? It's this vast conspiracy to keep you from knowing this thing that you've never heard about before that cures this, that magically makes money appear out of the sky, that whatever. Okay? It's an answer to that objection. Fake science. Okay? Almost all new health concepts are sold with fake science. Okay? And fake science can be applied in a lot of other fields as well. So here's how fake science works. The best, probably the best example, the last decade or so, very successful campaign. It's still used today. And it's all based around a book. Not this thick. book looks like this. The title of the book is Sharks Don't Get Cancer. Okay? Which they don't, by the way. So a shark is the only creature that... There's never been a reported case of a shark getting cancer. I don't know how many go in for mammograms. I have no idea. But, uh, 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 but if they do go in, they better have photo ID. Um, um, so, uh, but they can vote. Um, so, 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 here, so here's the fake science, right? The fake science in that book, which has sold more shark cartilage pills than there are sharks in the ocean. OK? 
because you only got to put a little bit of shark cartilage in, is since sharks don't get cancer, if you'll eat shark cartilage, you won't get cancer either. Now this is fake, but it sounds sensible. I mean, if you don't really stop to analyze it, so the most common demo for a mattress, where are my mattress guys? There you are, all the way in the back. Okay. They're dying to sell me a $35,000 mattress. That's what they're dying to do. I know. So here's the most common demo ever in the mattress business. Still being used today. You'll see it. I think it's Sleep Numbers using it now. The dropping of the bowling ball on the mattress from a particular height. And by the way, the height's pretty important because this is a magic trick. Okay. The dropping of the bowling ball on the mattress that does not bounce, which proves that the mattress evenly disperses weight and therefore you can move around and the person sleeping with you won't even notice. Well, for that to be real, first of all, there'd have to be a second bowling ball on the mattress because there's two people in the bed. Secondly, you don't get in the bed by being dropped from up here, <laughs> laid out evenly so that you fall with even weight to burst. So when you get up and go pee because of your prostate in the middle of the night, and you come back, oh, for you young ones in the room, let me tell you something. So, so, so when you come back, you do not climb up on a ladder, get out on a diving board over the bed, and fall onto it in perfect position like a bowling ball. That ain't how you get back in bed. You roll back into bed. So the only way that test would be valid is if we rolled bowling balls across the mattress. And we would see the mattress do this as we rolled the bowling balls across it. So it's a fake science demonstration. It works because it seems scientific. It seems real. And then last, if you're selling new concepts, overwhelming greed or overwhelming fear. People will buy something they know nothing about if their greed is high enough. So something, oh, I forgot to recommend the book. I'll back up quickly, so I'm going to recommend another book too. So the book I was going to recommend when we were talking about the juice band is a book called Buy Now by Rick Cesari. Um, it just came out. It's not entirely true, as most books aren't, but it's nearly true, and it's very instructive. It's very useful. You should all get it. An old out-of-print book that I was about to mention, okay, so Overwhelming Greed. Um, so you guys are all familiar with Madoff because it's been in the news, right? Madoff didn't invent any of this, of course. Enron, some of you are familiar with Enron. People invested in Enron. And if you ask them, explain to me how Enron makes money, they could not, nobody who invested in it could explain to you how in the hell they made money because they didn't make any money. They couldn't explain how they made money. Okay? But enough greed, everybody says, I don't really give a shit how they make money. Okay? I want 422% return on my money. Right? Well, Enron didn't invent it either. So you can go find this, Google, Wikipedia. You can find a book. It pre most of you wouldn't have paid any attention. It's a thing called the Homestake Oil Swindle. And the distinctive thing about the Homestake Oil Swindle is it's exactly what Enron did. It's just the story was told with oil instead of the story told with energy. And like Madoff, the who's who list of the investors, which is in the book, is a who's who of people 
who should have known better, including at the time the Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, uh, who got taken for, I think, six hundred and some odd thousand dollars. This is a long time ago when six hundred thousand dollars was a lot of money. So the list has bankers on it, the list has foundation managers, the list has the Secretary of the Treasury, the list has all these financial guys, okay, has a ton of celebrities. Bob Hope, as I recall, got nailed for a big sum of money. So it's like six pages of everybody, right? They all got swindled. And the cap point of the swindle was putting people in a helicopter and flying them out over the desert outside of Palm Springs in California and showing them different colored pipes, plastic pipes, intersecting with going around like in a diagram. But so there's purple pipe, and it goes over top of a pink pipe, and a yellow pipe goes over here, and they would fly them over the pipes. That was their demo. And everybody gave them money because of overwhelming greed, because the greed numbers were un, just off the charts. If you go back even further in this category, and you, you're curious about it, you can find a guy by the name of Bernie Kornfeld with Investors Overseas Services. And Bernie's a fascinating guy to read about anyway because he's crazy, uh, was crazy, uh, but also crazy like a fox. Overwhelming greed. So overwhelming greed, overwhelming fear is the last way that you can sell. Um, the new con concept. What do I want to talk about? Oh, I want to talk about the conditional sale. So this is an important concept called the conditional sale. In group selling, some people call it, well, it doesn't matter. So conditional sale means let's close on something. So I'll go back to where I started, which is if you have clarity about your job description and you are in selling, your job is to sell something. That's what selling is. So Zig's great line is, the pay's real low for professional visitors. Right? The pay's pretty good for professional salespeople but there's a whole lot of people who think they're salespeople who are really professional visitors, right? The only way we know if you're a salesperson is if you sell something, something, right? So if you can't sell the thing, there's always something you can sell in advance of selling the thing. That's called a conditional sale. And a question people will often ask that, well, they don't ask it. They say, well, my business is different, usually because I'm in B2B, for example, and I have complex sales to make, and so I have a long sales cycle. The terminology everybody uses, sales cycle, which I don't even know what that means. What's, it ain't like spring, summer, fall, winter. That's a, that's a cycle. It repeats itself over and over again. What the hell is a sales cycle? But everybody in B2B uses a language, right? And so what they mean is I have a really good excuse for why I can't sell anything today, this week, this month, and it's going to take me forever to close this sale because I'm selling a jet, okay? So let's take the private aviation industry. So some years back, to sell somebody a jet you had to sell them a jet. 
And that's like a million bucks, two million bucks, five million bucks, ten million bucks. There's tax issues. There's depreciation issues to figure out. It's not kind of like not buying a car. Most people just don't decide this weekend they're going to buy a jet, go drive around to a couple showrooms, and buy themselves a jet. Every once in a while, somebody does. But generally speaking, that's not how jets are sold. So they had a big, long sales cycle. And everybody complained about how long the sales cycle was. Then somebody figured out, why don't we sell parts of jets? That'll be easier. Maybe they'll buy a jet later, but maybe they'll buy part of a jet. That's called fractional jet ownership. Comes from the timeshare industry. So a business like NetJets, which Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway owns, right, sells timeshare of jets. Now, you're actually deeded to a jet, so you own the gas tank or the wing or the door or the porta potty. You own something. Okay? But really, what you got is points usable for hours on jets. And I can sell you that for 100 grand. Much easier decision to make, simpler. You don't have to decide on a plane because you can use your points on a big plane, small plane, new plane, old plane. There's a whole fleet of planes. Right? So Michael Gravett told me yesterday in Jacksonville, I didn't know this existed. It's probably common. I just didn't know about it. But they have a deal. You join a membership thing to, for boating. You don't have to buy a boat. And in fact, you, there's a whole bunch of boats you can use. So it sounds to me like the um, Avis rent-a-car pitch, is you can go pick any car in a row and drive it. So this is the boat membership deal. You got a certain number of hours of usage and you can pick any boat, big boat, small boat, row boat, fishing boat, off you go, right? So that's what they did with jets. Why did they do it? To shorten the sales cycle. Now also, when you sell parts of the whole rather than the whole, you actually wind up selling the parts for more than you would sell the whole for. So there's an economic thing, but mainly it reduced the sales cycle, to use that term, and gave everybody something they could sell quicker. And in many cases, they sold it as a conditional sale. So, okay, you don't want to buy a jet yet? You don't know which jet you want to buy? Buy this card, which lets you use all these jets, and use that for a year. And by the time you're done at the end of the year, you'll know which jet you want to buy. Okay? The ones that tie that together, they do the roll-up sales thing, same thing we do in our business. They'll say, oh, and if you do buy a jet before you use up your card, okay, so within a year, within 18 months, whatever the term of the card is, you make a decision about the jet within that period of time, we'll give you full credit for what you spent for the card towards the plane. Therefore, all the flying you do this year will have been free. Now, this is fake math, like fake science, because I'm determining what the price of the plane is that I'm discounting from. I mean, it's nonsense, but it sounds good, right? So now I got something I can sell quicker, easier, and I can turn it into a conditional sale. What did they do next? Smaller dollar value card. Costs you more dollars per hour, a lot more. 
but you could buy a card from some of these companies for as little as $25,000. And you got hours that you could use on these jets. So they created something they could sell. Right? So the idiots in the booths at the home show from whom I tried to buy a generator. Right? Who, by the way, the more I talk about it, the more I'm determined to go find somebody, none of them, to buy a generator from. I hate rewarding bad salesmanship, but it, it pains me. But so they have to. The only way they can sell that thing is somebody's got to come out to the house and diagnostically examine the house to prescribe the right size and make sure it can, there's a place for it and all that. They have to do that to make that sale. So... So everybody will tell you the show, by the way. It's the very first show. How many of you have worked consumer shows or trade shows? Okay. And how many of you have worked them as some company's employee? Okay. So here's probably what you were told by the employer or by all the other sales guys. Forget about selling at a show. That's what I was told the first time I went to a show, right, which was a week after I got hired and the only sales job, the only job I've ever had, really. Oh, and then when you got there, everybody ganged up on me. Okay, kid, you can't sell at a show. Forget all about selling at a show. You haven't got time to sell at a show. People aren't here to buy at the show. They're only here to get information. Just look for the badges that match your territory, meet and greet, get them a catalog, move them on, get the next one. You can't sell at a show. I'm going, I'm on a bonus. The only way I get paid is if I sell something. My thing says sales representative, the business cards they gave me. I think that means you're supposed to sell something. I thought that's why I was here, right? I said, so none of you guys are trying to sell, right? No, can't sell at a show. Perfect. What does that tell me? <laughs> sell at a show, right? Three quick diagnostic questions to decide whether you might buy something or not. If you do, grab you. No tables or chairs because you can't sell at a show. In our booth, no point in sitting them down. You can't sell them. So we're sitting on the floor, right? I'm writing orders, right? So at the home show, what could they sell? The appointment, at least. They got to come to my house. Sell me the diagnostic appointment. So we're going to run your card for 99 bucks. You get this kit about how to protect your home from locust attacks, terrorists, Etc. So you get this cool kit about how to protect your home from all this stuff. You get the diagnostic appointment, and if you wind up getting a generator from us, we credit your $99 against the generator, so none of this cool shit really cost you anything. Here, sign here. That's a conditional sale. Several things would happen had they done that. One, I would have had somebody out to the house by now. Right? Two, I would have had them out to the house by now. Three, they almost certainly would have written an order for a generator. Okay? Instead, none of those things happen. So you shorten the sale with the conditional sale. So in Tom Shack's case, selling franchises, what's the conditional sale? The discovery day. Now they know they're coming to make a decision about the real sale, but we have something we can sell them that does not require them to make that complex and difficult decision that would take it a mountain of time and needs, requires them to be talked to and talked to and talked to. We can just sell them the discovery day. In my world, 
my private practice where every project is custom and I don't know what you need, okay? What do I sell? The day. By the day. And I used to, I don't need to do it anymore. But early, I used to do the and. At the end of the day, one of three things happens. The third thing is we agree on project on projects that need to be done and me doing them for you. And if we go ahead with the projects, the fee for the day is fully credited to the fee for the project. So really, the day costs you nothing. You understand that's fake math because I determine the fee for the project. That's why I don't bother doing it anymore. A, I don't need to. And B, it's fake math. But it worked. Everybody liked it. So I sit there now and figure out what the fee for your project should be, which is $82,643. And I deduct the fee you paid for the day in a big, bright green marker. And you're excited because you just got your fee back and the day cost you nothing. Since I picked the number on top, I picked the number on the bottom. Okay? It's not like I discounted it from a tire in a store with a price tag on it. I made up the price. Fake math, but everybody liked it. Okay? So the conditional sale, right? Yeah, a client of mine who sells very complicated donation systems for charities to donors. So somehow he takes their money, he puts it in 82 trusts and life insurance policies, and ultimately the million-dollar donation costs the guy nothing, plus somehow he gets money back and a tax advantage. And So I don't understand none of this. Okay? But I do understand it's a difficult and complex sale. So his conditional sale process is, first of all, he gets the charity not to commit to giving this to pitching this program to anybody. He gets the charity just to commit to running a focus group of five of their best donors. They only have to get their five best donors to commit to coming and participating in the focus group. The charity pays to have the focus group run but if any of their donors ultimately participate in the program and or they go forward after the focus group approves it and they roll the program out to all their donors, then they get their fee back fully credited against the fees for selling the whole program. So the focus group is free. They're picking the top number. They're picking the bottom number. Jerry's gone. Oh, that's wonderful. Right? What are they doing in the focus group? The focus group is really a group sales presentation. That's what it is. Right? So somebody buys something. So they got two conditional sales before they get to the sale. Okay. So are you an amateur or a pro in selling? Here's four ways that we know. Here's how we know. One, how you handle your language. Okay. So real sales pros approach selling the same way copywriters approach copywriting. That's why the overwhelming majority of the truly great copywriters all had sales, nose-to-nose, face-to-face, toes-to-toes, sales experience. Ogilvy sold pots and pans door-to-door, for example. Almost every great copywriter was a good salesperson, and then the two go together because we know Language matters. And so the amateur salesperson has not picked the language he uses. So if you think somebody gets on QVC under all the pressure that we just described, 
in order to sell on QVC and goes out there and wings it, they'll only be there once. Now, they can't work from a script because it's live TV and they're dealing spontaneously with callers, but they have pieces that have been scripted, and more important, they have language they have chosen and memorized for the way they describe the product, for the way they answer the most common questions. They've picked language. So if you hear a really good pro, they're going to use the same language every single time. If you see an amateur, they're all over the place. Scripts, secondly. In any environment where you can script, a pro scripts. They write scripts. They memorize scripts. They practice scripts. So in environments where it's critical, so selling from the stage at the success events, which I did for nine years, I got to hit a number. Or the host is in big trouble, and I don't make any money. <coughs> that world is all about dollars per head, dollars per minute. That's the measurement. You do not go out there on Tuesday and give one talk and go out on Thursday and give another talk and talk about what you feel like talking about. It's not this. See, I'm not selling anything here. So if I entertain myself and amuse myself and, it does, and, you, and I don't amuse you, if I skip a few, none of that matters because I have no selling function up here. So I have complete liberty to just do any damn thing I want, really, and it isn't going to make any difference. But if I was selling something, every little thing matters. Therefore, a good platform salesperson, so if you saw me speak at any success event anywhere in America and then saw me a year later in a different city at a different success event, it's like getting your burger at McDonald's. It was the same, not just to the word, but to the minute on the clock when the word was said. The AV crew used to have a little pool to see if I'd hit it. This sentence at this time. So we would have little bets about it. And I won 90% of the time. So scripts. Now the argument against scripts you hear are, it takes away all my spontaneity. Well, when you fly home at the end of this event, you better hope you do not have a couple of pilots deeply committed to a philosophy of spontaneity. <laughs> Air traffic controllers get in the way of my spontaneity. I'm just going to shoot up there and pick a spot where I like the shape of the clouds today. Not a good idea. God forbid you need critical surgery. Let's hope the doctor is not deeply philosophically committed to spontaneity. Oh, what the hell. I'll um, close my eyes, throw the scalpel, and wherever it lands today, that'll be where we go in. That'll make this more interesting. I'm kind of bored with what I'm doing, doing the same operation over and over and over again. Here's a way to spice it up. For that matter, how about if I just stay blindfolded the whole time? That'll be cool, right? You better hope not. So you got to decide whether what you're doing is of critical importance to somebody 
them, you, or both. And if it is, spontaneity is nonsense. That's not in the job description. The job description is best script, best gestures, best body language, best everything, figured out, tested, perfected, practiced, ingrained. You can wake a good platform salesperson up, poke him out of a dead sleep, give him three words to start a sentence anywhere in his presentation, and he's going to do it. An amateur you can't really do that with. Pros, work on the script, redo the script. I did the same speech every single time, 25 times a year or more for nine years, to the minute, on the clock. What did I do every time before I went and did it? Reviewed the script. I had a written script, word for word. Read that six, seven times in the room before I came down. Went through all my slides, said it. So when I got up there, I hit the marks. When we had Zig speak, speak at the super conference, I come downstairs, 7 o'clock in the morning, Zig's back in the green room. What's he doing? Reviewing his file cards. Now, he don't use the file cards on stage, but the file cards have the whole presentation written on them. And the file cards that have the actual sales pitch written on them, they got highlighter marks all over them, and he's studying them. You know how many times he did that presentation? Six million times. But he's got a script, and a pro works on the script. Choreography. From a platform salesperson, the great ones, not only are the words and the clock and all that, the gesture, Ernie Kessler, who comes from the Get Rich in Real Estate business, Ernie literally, there's a particular point in his speech where to give people a little time to digest it, he uses the glass and the water as a little prop. Okay? Same word every single time. So that's not accident. That's a choreographed thing. Every stand-up com comic does exactly the same thing. Every great performer. So even in a one-on-one set. So it just kills me, for example. Oh, let's do a webinar. We'll stick a webcam over here. Or we'll put a camera on a tripod. And we'll just do it. What? You've got to be kidding me. It's a sales event. There's criticality to it. Should be scripted, should be practiced, should be rehearsed, should be choreographed, the movement, the facial, what camera do you look at, all that. You don't just go out there and do that. Okay? And then last is environment. So we talked about that a little bit before. The control of the environment. Right? So I'm going to show you something really cool. Some of you have seen it before. It's still mystifying. Dave could explain to you how it's done, but he won't. Okay. But, and you got to watch real close at the beginning or you won't get the end. Okay. But this is a demonstration of how environment can control outcome. So if you guys can roll that, it's about six minutes. If you can roll that Darren Brown piece for me, that would be great. Okay. I invited two members of MBA, an advertising agency, to a secret location to propose an unusual task. Those who work in advertising are masters of persuasion. They subtly weave their images and slogans into our daily lives, knowing that we will register so much unconsciously. And then we walk into a supermarket and feel a sense of familiarity with a product we think we've never heard of. 
Millions of pounds a year are spent on it. It's brilliantly calculated and we all fall for it. So I thought I'd turn the tables on the advertising experts. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Tony, yes? Yeah, and Martin? Yeah. Hi, I'm Darren. Let me get down to explaining exactly what I want you to do. Imagine that I'm opening a chain of stores selling a product, something I have a particular interest in. Your task is to come up with a poster advertising that store. And that poster must include the company name, whatever you decide that may be. It must include a strap line, some sort of slogan, and some kind of logo as well, some kind of visual image. Now, the idea is you've only got half an hour to do this, so you've got to really work with your first instinct. So at the moment, you've got no idea what you're going to do, correct? Yeah. Excellent. I'm also going to give you this. I've had a few design ideas of my own. I want to leave this untouched. We'll come back to that later. All right? Are there any questions? What's the product? What's the product? Very good question. Uh, passion of mine since I was a toddler. It's a chain of taxidermy stores. Ooh. Let me uh, pop the pussycat on the envelope so it remains untouched. You have half an hour, gentlemen. Good luck. Great, thanks. Get it stuffed in the start. The ones who didn't make it. No, that's probably just stupid. Two wings. What creature's great and small? Quality that says like nice, positive type of yeah. animals. Animal heaven. Where animals go. Animal heaven, that's good. Graveyard. Animal, animal yeah. heaven's good. Animal heaven. Where the best animals go to. Loads of clouds with animals on them. Yeah, yeah. Gates, pearly gates, bare, three and a half. Yeah. Only the best Zoom. get in. Only the best get into it. Yeah. yeah. Where dead animals go oh. to live. Where the best. best. It's the best place for dead animals. <laughs> <laughs> Simple. Time up, gentlemen. Okay. I can't wait to see what you've done. Uh, come and show me. Okay. And Tony, before yeah. we do this, can you take the uh, envelope I gave you earlier? Okay. And can you please vouch for us here that no one's been anywhere near it. He's been under a dead cat. No one's touched it. That's right. That's the truth. That's the truth. truth. Keep hold of it. Come around here. Now, before we have a look <clears> at it, just tell me what was it like. We started off thinking about the name. I thought that was in, we thought that was probably yeah. the best thing to the do. Starting point. Sure. And then take it from there. Really, we banged out a lot of ones that were probably completely stupid and then got down to the ones that were slightly stupid mm -hmm. and then we kind of that went back yeah. and forth for a bit and then kind of got something we liked and developed yeah. it can i have a look sure sure is this it yeah that's fantastic <laughs> it's, it's a bear with a liar so it's animal heaven the best place for dead animals and it's obviously, you, you'd see that it was stuffed. How did you come up with the name Animal Heaven? We had the idea of the pearly gates of heaven being a zoo gate. Zoo gates as the gates of heaven, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, i.e. sort of all the animals that are dead are in a dead zoo, if you like, in heaven. And then we just kind of thought, well, it's kind of nice, but it's a bit twee. We wanted to make it a bit funkier. And then we thought mm. a hard playing bear just answered the, <laughs> answered the brief. That's fantastic. I do want to show you my own ideas from beforehand. OK. Um, I don't want to touch. Would you open them for me? Sure. And the winner is... I think you'll find this interesting. Okay. The envelope. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. All right. Not a million miles away. Let me put this up there. Hang on to that. It's... Yeah. It's a heart-playing bear. Yeah. God. You've gone... For these angel wings here, were you thinking of angel wings or bird wings? Yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah. they were kind of a combination. You do them a lot better than me. This, uh, this was the same thing. I was thinking angel wings there. You've got animal heaven. I've got creature heaven. Yeah. 
We're the best. A bit off there, then. A bit off there. <laughs> Where the best dead animals go. God. Could you put blessed place with dead animals? Wow. Very similar. I had the idea of a zoo gate on there. It was hard to we leave out. We didn't want to overload it. Was, it. it was hard to leave out, but sure. it, just was, it was just a bit too much. Can I see your other, um, the other one you were talking yeah. about? Yeah, put it down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just before there. Is yeah. it very different? Well, well it's just, just the gates. Yeah. Oh, gentlemen, please. Yeah. We're drawn quite similar. <laughs> Look at that. This, this was the image I was thinking. I've done it there in the background because this to me was the more striking image and interestingly you abandoned this for this one. This was yeah. obviously well, the first, the first bear I drew looks exactly like that one, actually. It did, yeah. The oh, first bear you drew? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll show yeah. you on the, on the notes. Show me, like that, show yeah. me, what have you got? Well, that, this is scary, really. Um... Oh, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. You've got the cloud, you've got the blue. If you knew the amount of effort we've gone into making this work, you'd be mm. absolutely flabbergasted. But for now, it's comforting to know that you're just as susceptible to subliminal persuasion as the rest of us. Thank you very much for <laughs> helping you. us out. Tony, Thank you. Martin. Pleasure. Take care. Thank Thanks. you very much indeed. Bye -bye. I think I'm quite cynical. When I saw the bear and I saw a cloud, first of all, from, you know, behind the paper, I thought, hang on, he's close here. And then when, when we saw the rest of it, I you know, couldn't believe it. I uh, immediately thought, oh, I'm gutted. <laughs> I, I can see that it was folded, and I just saw the bear's foot hanging over the cloud with the harp. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, I can't believe it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's how embarrassing. But now, now I think, oh, fantastic, yeah. you know, I'm over the moon. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously we're pleased for him, you know. Yeah, so, you know, if he comes out of this looking good, then that's, you know, <laughs> that's always the main thing. <laughs> to see how we did it, watch their taxi journey again. I put a spell on you. Okay, so anytime you think that what's on the wall behind you, what's on the shelf next to you, what's on the set of the video that you are making. See, when we do an infomercial, set dressing is a major, what are we going to put here, what are we going to put here, what are we going to see, all that's a major discussion. I find when people do webinars, by the way, it isn't a discussion at all, right? But it's a major discussion, and it integrates with script. Again, I find people doing webinars, there's no the scripts done over here. We slap some images up over here. Hey, this is all, all this matters. Client comes to the financial advisor's office. Everything in the environment matters. And if you ever think it doesn't, try to remember this video. Okay? Scripts, language, we talked about choreography, so Grant Miller's example, the tour in the chiropractic office that we structured years ago, an example, everything from is somebody touched on the shoulder, not touched on the shoulder, are they, so when Sidney Barrows did a bunch of research about the cosmetic surgery industry for a client, um, she found two things, one, so I'll give you one, what do people, and generally in doctor's offices, what do people like least? It sets their teeth on edge being called from the waiting room. And the older they are, the more it aggravates them. Right? So 
the nurse stands at the door and says, okay, Mr. Brown, come on back, like they're running prices right. All right. The correct choreography is go out into the waiting room, touch Mr. Brown, depending upon his age, be there to help him up. Mr. Brown, come with me. You can come back now. Okay? It matters if a sale is going to take place. By the way, I'm recommending books. I'm sure we have it here. Uncensored Sales Strategies, the book I wrote with Sid uh, about environment and choreography. All this matters. It either makes your job easier or it makes your job harder. If you want your job to be easier, this matters. We'll end with a couple of great lessons in selling. You have these in your notes. Some I will just briefly mention. Some I'll spend a little time on because we don't have time for all of them. Uh, so Charles Atlas. Everybody knows Charles Atlas, right? Is there anybody in here to whom the name Charles Atlas means nothing? Raise your hands nice and proud. Really? Okay. There's a few of you. Google them. The entire modern fitness movement exists largely because of Charles Atlas and his business partner. Arnold Schwarzenegger exists because of Charles Atlas. Jake Steinfeld, Body by Jake, exists because of Charles Atlas. So Charles Atlas was the first really successful seller of a home exercise regimen and device, which was called Dynamic Tension. And it was sold, launched, built with a now iconic ad, which is why you should know about it, even if you have nothing to do with the fitness industry, by a now iconic ad that ran in comic books. And it had a comic strip in it, big picture of Charles, but a comic strip that was about the scrawny kid at the beach with his girlfriend and the bully who kicked sand in his face. You should, you'll be able to see the ad if you Google, or if you go to charlesatlas.com, because this product is still sold today after all these years. Today it's sold more as a novelty, I suppose, than it is as a fitness device, but nonetheless it's still sold. So if you go to charlesatlas.com, uh, you'll be able to see the ad, you'll be able to see the original ad, you'll be able to see the product, you'll be able to see the story. The entire thrust of this selling is based on the power of negative emotions. And that's the great sales lesson. It's not about having a better body. It's about not having sand kicked in your face and being embarrassed in life, a metaphor for having sand kicked in your face. I'm going to skip Reagan. I'm going to skip Turner. We talked about the criticality of the origin story in Batman. Another book I want to recommend for those of you who haven't heard the recommendation before. So the best book ever on the power of discrimination really predatory discrimination and target selection. And understand, I don't mean anything negative by predatory discrimination. Uh, I mean it in a positive sense. It's a book by Reverend Rick Warren. You probably know him if you think about it. Huge, huge, huge megachurch, best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Life. Right? The book you want to go find is the marketing book written for pastors called The Purpose Driven Church. Right? Notice the title of the book doesn't say Marketing for Pastors. Uh, it says The Purpose Driven Church. But it really is a book about marketing for pastors. And in the book, you will find an entire chapter about their targeting of who they want to go get as the most likely person to get into the membership of that church. And you will be probably 
shocked and surprised at how precise, how predatory, how discriminatory their process is. The last one I want to talk to you about is the power of demonstration. And a lot of people, oh, my business is different. There's nothing I can demonstrate. And I say to you, you have to find something you can demonstrate. Now, remember, drawing it on a whiteboard instead of showing it to me in a PowerPoint presentation is a form of demonstration. So the power of demonstration can help you enormously. And so it's, because I'm almost out of time, it's the last thing we'll do. Uh, I'm going to show you two things. I'm going to show you, and we'll just, we'll run them all back to back without a comment, guys. So I'm going to show you two things. I'm going to show you two newsreels. They're actual newsreel clips of Houdini, um, um, which there were no newsreels at the time, so he had the newsreels made, by the way, and then gave them to the media. But you will see Houdini do his famous straitjacket escape in two environments. When it's done, right before I walk off stage, I'll tell you the most important thing to know about it, but watch carefully. And then right behind it, you're going to see a little tiny clip from a reality show, which you can go get all the DVDs of, if you wish, called The Pitchman. Uh, it features a now iconic figure recently deceased named Billy Mays, who, if you don't know the name, you will recognize him as soon as you see him, and you will see a demonstration done for a very, very successful product on TV. So, guys, if you can run those right back to back, that would be great. And, Dave, we're probably going to be five minutes over tops if you're trying to keep the trains running on time.
moments of television wow that makes you buy now. But I'm still not done. Direct response ads are a multi-billion dollar industry. Billy Mays here for OxyClean. Billy Mays. Hi, Billy Mays here. And Anthony Sullivan. Anthony Sullivan here. These two veteran pitch pros have mastered the art of turning good ideas into must-have products. Now, they're putting their egos aside and their heads together. They're going to help everyday people with great ideas go from rags to riches. This is a home run. And maybe turn someone's million-dollar dream into a reality. The dreams come true. But you have to watch now. Here's how to order. On this episode... One man bets the farm on a shoe insert. We always look for products that solve a common problem. And a lot of people are in pain, and the insult business is huge. One of the number one things for me when I'm doing an infomercial uh, is a demonstrable. The demonstration is going to be... Watch this. Look, I can take my hand in there. Then go. All right. You need table bottles. Your hand okay? Those, oh, yeah. Can you move all your fingers? Sure about that? Yeah, 100%. It's one of the best demonstrations I've ever seen in my life. Hit it harder. Come on. Yeah, give it to me. Ready? Oh, you do it. <laughs> no, 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 no trickery here or anything, right? No. I mean, you feel a tiny bit, but I mean, if you feel that without that, I'd be no, going to I wouldn't attempt to do it. That's a great demo. So if you're taking this technology and putting it into insoles, that's a good place to start. A 10-pound hammer is one thing. But a 6,000-pound car is another. But that's what it's going to take to put Matt's new shoe inserts over the top. It's going to run over Billy's hand with a car, but Impact Gel is going to protect his hand. It's a great demo, and Billy's going to do it. He's going to make it happen. Got to give you eyes a lens here. Ready? Quiet, please. Three, two, one, action. Talk about shock absorbency. I'm going to let this 6,000 car... Kidding me? No, I'm not doing it. What? No. I'm crazy, but I'm not stupid. And maybe it doesn't hurt. I've smashed my hand with that hammer all day long, and I still got to smash my hand some more. You said you would do it all day. Look, I'll do it. Can I have a blue shot? Coming down. Sorry, it's fine. It's fine. I have to go out there and pitch all the time. These are my weapons. This is what I work with. I'm not behind the camera, you know, yelling action. If he wants to do it, he can do it. I don't have to prove anything. Rolling day. Rolling. Okay, ready? If this all goes to plan, I'm just gonna pull my hand out and go like that. All right? Yeah. Go. Get it? Yeah. Go. That is the last time I'm doing that today. Okay, so very quickly, the Pitchman demo, the shoe insole you just saw, now go think about that because it's the bowling ball demo, okay? It's just as flawed, okay? It's utterly fake science. It has nothing to do with the way you actually use a foot insole in your shoe and how it relieves pressure because we do two things. We stand for long periods of time and we walk. We don't lie upside down and have people drop heavy weights on the base of our feet. That's not what we do. So it proves nothing, yet it proves everything. The Houdini examples, if you watch Boardwalk Empire, there's, there's, there's an episode of Boardwalk Empire where Houdini's brother, Hardeen, 
who performed as a magician, has just done a show, and he's now backstage with people, and they start to ask him about Houdini's straitjacket escapes hanging upside down over huge crowds and jumping into the ocean and so forth. And Hardeen, really annoyed, says, you just saw me do it on stage. It's the same damn trick. Well, it is, except, and lots of magicians were doing it then and lots of magicians do it now, okay? Almost all of them, if you go see them do it in a show, have to briefly get behind a screen because they are so close to you that you can see what it is that they are doing. When they're down in the street and you're six stories above them, they can't see. A, it's actually easier to do it if you don't mind hanging up, upside down and you don't have to step behind a screen and take away the impact of the demonstration. Okay? So he choreographed the demonstration to his advantage and made it infinitely more dramatic, even though the drama had nothing to do actually with the execution of the trick. That's brilliant demonstration. I'm out of clock. You've been a great group. I'll see you later. Dave, they're yours. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.